0: what this program has done for me is it's given me a way to get through things with an element of grace and dignity you know whereas before i mean shit i couldn't even do lunch without something in me
1: is that- From Darkness to Life contains the real stories of courageous individuals who found their way out of the darkness caused by mental health challenges and substance abuse. If these stories resonate with you and you or someone you love need help and don't know where to turn, Rick, Ryan, and Damien are here for you. Please reach out when you're ready to ourcollectivejourney.ca or on Facebook at Our Collective Journey.
2: Hello everybody, Uh, my name is Damien Davis with Our Collective Journey. I'd like to welcome you all to another episode of our podcast series, From Darkness to Life. I have uh, Rick Armstrong sitting to my left, and I have Mark sitting to my right. It's a fairly special uh, episode that we're going to get into today at the uh, Plugged In Media Network Studios. Um, We're going to talk about... uh, Alcoholism and uh, and recovery today. Um, how are you guys doing? How are you being, Rick? <laughs> um,
3: <clears throat> I had a really challenging week, actually. To be honest with you, it uh, it was crazy for me. It started with the knock on my door at about nine thirty on Monday night from a police officer looking for my son, which uh, is is nothing anybody wants. Immediately go to a place of, what did the little shit do, and to find out that uh, there'd been, there'd been a threat to his life, at his place of employment, and he uh, managed to get that. As a result, somebody phoned into his place of employment. The place of employment got shut down, and uh, all the people got barricaded inside while well, the police sorted all this out. And there's a yeah a direct threat on my son's life, which was turned into an interesting week i guess to say the least but it's all all good everything sorted out and uh yeah a bit of a challenge but such is life and here we are yeah Yeah, amazing
0: i'm doing good um had a good week had the opportunity to listen to rick speak about a week ago i had an opportunity to listen to damien speak last night um I like to say that I'm good, but there's a lot of, uh, a lot of chatter in my head. There's a lot of nerves. I was up at, uh, from 2 a.m. to 4.30 a.m. monologuing in my head, right, on, uh, on what this is going to look like. I literally got an encyclopedia of information at the tip of my tongue and, you know, chatting with these guys here earlier that, uh, there's always how you want this to look, how it actually looks, and then how you wish it would have looked afterwards. So, um... Just gonna see how this goes, and and um, yeah, I'm, I'm here, right? So
2: yeah, I think uh, that's uh, what is the saying: change is constant, growth is optional. And I think uh, every time we, we get together in one of these forums and we're sharing a message of experience, strength, and hope, it's a it's a chance for us to to grow as men and as human beings, and you know to to utilize our experiences that we've had in the past to uh, maybe change the narrative on what it's like to uh, to be a recovered alcoholic. And, uh, yeah, it's an honor to have you here, Mark. You know, I think, uh, Rick and I have known you for the entire, uh, well, not the entire, but a good portion of our recovery journey. And, uh,
0: how did we meet? Well, it's funny. I met, uh, I met you, Damien, on your first day back into 12-step recovery. Um, but the thing is about that day for me, it was, uh. It was actually one of my darkest days in, I was about a year and a half sober at the time. And it was one of my worst days in recovery. And And what was really instilled to me this last time in recovery with the sponsor that I had was the absolute necessity of working with others, not when I feel good, but especially when I feel like shit, right? So, and that's what I did is I got myself over to a, to a noon 12 step meeting and put it out there. What I was taught to do is to put it out there into the universe to please put somebody in front of me suffering more than me. And there was absolutely no question who that person was. Um, <laughs> Damien was there. He was. Uh, he had a big beard. He had a short-sleeved shirt. He was on steroids. The biggest thing that I remember, though, were his eyes. His eyes were bouncing around like a... Uh, like a pinball in a pinball machine, right? He was, uh, well, I shouldn't say he looked crazy. I think he probably was crazy that day. But uh, that was how we met, right? That was my uh, my journey with, with meeting Damien. I uh, met Rick in early recovery. I don't, uh, it wasn't his first day in, but it was uh, early in. First week for sure. Yeah, with, with Rick, it was uh he just looked mean. <laughs> he looked mad. You know, he's mean-mugging everybody, but you could tell there was a lot of pain there. And uh, it's been an absolute privilege getting to know both you guys and and uh, to watch you grow, because, I, I mean, I've seen the before pictures with both of you, right? And to see what you guys are doing now, it's it's really an honour. It's a privilege, and I'm proud of both of you. Yeah,
2: I, I think I can speak for Rick. It's, uh, it is a privilege, privilege to be on this journey with you as well, um, to to walk arm in arm with somebody that's uh, making a difference in the world and, and and doing it on a daily basis is uh, probably one of the highlights of my life most definitely for sure I was uh, showering this morning and I was thinking about this
3: <clears throat> this episode and uh, the one thing that kept coming to mind is, is it's a really really short list of people who have had a significant impact on the trajectory of my life and like probably the two most influential people on that journey for me or sitting in this room today. So thank
2: you guys for that. No, I, I can add, uh, I don't have many friends anymore. You guys are
0: <laughs> pretty high on that list. <laughs> it's a pretty short list. Yeah. No, I feel the same way and to watch you guys like learn and grow and just doing all the things you are in the community. It's, uh, that's better than any drink or drug that I've ever experienced, right, is to actually watch the lights go on in another human being and then to see them you know, be unstoppable and, and just to go thrive in life, you know. It's been it's it's fun. It's absolutely fun for me to watch. Yeah, amazing. Um,
2: so yeah, let's let's just jump right into, you know, the 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 subject matter at hand. Um we're gonna talk about, you know, recovery and and how we got to where we're at and and maybe uh change the narrative on on what, you know, the 12 step fellowships are about um do you want to talk to us mark about the history of of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous
0: yeah sure I guess I'll maybe just backtrack here a little bit with some of the the struggle I've had here even this morning of uh, speaking my truth right and you know in, in speaking my truth there's a uh, there's a high likelihood I might piss off or offend a few people out there but uh what I've come to realize is the only thing worse than telling my truth and being criticized is uh not telling my truth right because that's the kind of shit that uh grinds my soul to the absolute to an absolute nub right um the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous did indeed save my life um I spent, I always make the joke, I spent $50,000 on my $10 big book um, because that's approximately what I spent in treatment centers, doctors, counselors, uh, private coaches. Even Tony Robbins got some of that money. Um, But the big thing was is I, uh, I didn't want to be in 12-step recovery. You know, I really did... uh, a number of things not to be here um, the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous is it's kind of like the mothership for for all the other programs I'm not going to say which 12-step fellowship that I'm in um, but the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous is the mothership for all the other uh, for all the other fellowships um, I did uh, I did pull a few stats up on the big book itself and there's been uh, fifty million copies of this book sold. You know, I think a lot of people don't realize just uh how many copies are out there. So it's like what, number two behind the Bible, maybe all the time? I'm not sure. <laughs> it's gotta be close. <laughs> yeah. But. Yeah, it's up there, right? Yep. Yeah. And that's uh that's well over fifty million that are sold now. But here's what I found really interesting. There's been two hundred and twenty seven uh Fellowships that have adopted the 12 Steps and the 12 Traditions from the Big Book. Now, don't get me to name them. I could probably name 10 at best, right? But there's 227 fellowships that have adopted this. Um, The only thing that they've changed is what you're powerless over and who you're carrying the message to, you know. But uh, it's been it's been such an integral part of, of of recovery. Like millions of people have literally been helped by the. Not just the message, but the directions that are from this book. Right? It's been named by Time Magazine as one of the most influ- influential books written in English. Uh, the Library of Congress has named it one of the books that has helped shaped America, and uh, arguably one of the most important things that have happened in the 20th century. Right? Millions of people uh, have been saved by by the message that's in this book. I know that that my life has been as well.
2: So when you said you spent $50,000 on everything to attempt to get well before getting into the fellowship what were some of the what were some of the, the things that caused you not to invest in you know alcoholics anonymous or uh
0: why avoid it yeah well that's an easy one <laughs> the god thing right that kept me out for sure you know that was um <clears throat> i I had an idea, or at least I thought I had an idea, what Alcoholics Anonymous or 12 step program was about. And um, I wanted nothing to do with it, right? Um, I claimed I was an atheist. I claimed I was an agnostic. Um, I really wasn't at the end of the day. And, you know, maybe we can talk about that a little bit more uh, as we go along here. But without question, that was the part that kept me out. And also, I don't know, I like to fancy myself as an intellect and and a lot of willpower. And I just, I had a lot of fight in me, right? And I really wanted to willpower my way out of this. I wanted to self-knowledge my way out of this. I wanted to find a way out other than, than 12-step recovery. And so,
2: I know the 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 buzzword around you you had to hit rock bottom so i know you've seen me and rick at the beginning of our sobriety journey but what did that look like for you what did you look like when you first uh walked into the
0: rooms for the last time so i had uh i had two rock bottoms and this is where i think it's important that that we start speaking the same language right i had an external rock bottom, where I thought was my rock bottom, and it was in my early 30s, I was uh, I was broke, I was living in a friend's basement uh, on a blow-up bed, um, I had a business on the verge of bankruptcy, uh, I had a girl that just left me, you know, externally, um, by all measures, that was my rock bottom, externally. Um, but what I did have was a case of the if onlys, right? I still had a little bit of fight left in me. I had, if only, I could just get the girl. If only I could just make enough money. If only I could just get a house. If only I could just get that vehicle. If only, if only, if I, own, if only, right? Now, through some a change of career, uh, some hard work, maybe some good luck along the way, um, I got everything that I thought I wanted and I remember my my true bottom and this is where I think that rock bottom is actually the same for everybody I think rock bottom can happen on Park Avenue and I think rock bottom can happen on a park bench because for me it was an internal thing it was an internal condition and I remember being in Maui and I was with this beautiful woman I had a good job I had a lot of money my career was thriving I owned a a ton of rental properties and I was dying of alcoholism, right? And I just remember, um, and I I, I had a a little stretch of sobriety at the time. Like I could never make it more than 30 days on my own, but I had a, a few weeks under my belt. And I just remember looking in the mirror and saying, fuck, it's still there. You know, like I got everything that I thought I ever wanted from an external level and it's like shit it's still there to me that was that was actually significantly worse than my external bottom you know because it's like what now right i got everything i thought i ever wanted on external level i got everything society told me i ever needed on an external level and i mean me personally i wasn't suicidal but i had the best way to describe it was Feelings of impending doom, you know, sober, you know, and, uh, that to me, there's four words that our literature uses to describe, uh, that internal condition, which is bottom. And they refer to them as the four hideous horsemen, which is terror, bewilderment, frustration and despair, you know, and that's the language, at least in my opinion, that, the guy under the park bench speaks as well as the millionaire speaks. You know, bottom. I mean, if this was an external thing, th- these millionaires wouldn't be blowing their brains out. You know.
3: Yeah, and I think we we touch on that fairly regularly, right? Is is the perception of what it what this illness looks like, and uh, and the and the inability to for people to potentially self-identify because of just that, right? You hear war stories, you hear you hear people losing it all you hear you know and, and and for somebody who hasn't quite got there yet that you know how you say it, that external low they 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 won't recognize what they might be suffering from because the perception of society and, and individuals is, is that destitute homeless alcoholic or addict right and and the reality is it's it's uh at least for the, I know the three of us sitting around this table, it couldn't be farther from the truth.
0: Yeah, totally. For me, the, uh, it's been, it actually took a long time for me to actually figure out what it meant to, to suffer from the illness of alcoholism, right? You know, and I would hear, I would, I would hear these stories and, and I do appreciate people telling their stories and, and you hear these stories of, of horrible childhood and, and trauma and redemption, you know, and, and it's amazing how people can come through the other side of all that. But me with my alcoholic brain, when I listen to that stuff, it actually, um, actually has me start thinking that's maybe I'm not an alcoholic because that didn't happen to me. You know, I would hear the stories. Well, I'm an alcoholic cause I got four DUIs, right? And I'm like, well, I don't have four DUIs. Maybe I'm not an alcoholic or the next person would say, well, I'm an alcoholic cause I live under a bridge. It's like, well, I don't live under a bridge maybe I'm not, not an alcoholic or I'm an alcoholic cause I got seven years in prison. Like, well, I, I don't have seven years in prison. Maybe I'm not an alcoholic. Right. And, um, it took some, some really good sponsorship to actually have me figure out what it is that I actually suffered from. And I know it was a turning point for me when you took me into the,
2: the, the big book, uh, and sh- took me through the doctor's opinion on, you know, what my disease actually is. Um, Can you expand upon that? Uh, Maybe I can just read something to you. Yeah, yeah. That looks like a pretty
0: used book. That book's got some miles on it, eh? It does. (laughs) I'm just going to read something right directly from our literature because I think it's important that, first of all, I just want to put it out there that I'm not a spokesman for any 12-step recovery program. I'm not an expert on recovery. Uh, but I am an ex- expert on my experience because I was there when it happened for the most part. <laughs> so, um, but what I'm going to try to do is rather than it be Mark's opinion, uh, I'm going to, I do try to stick close to our literature because my experience is that it, it it works extremely well, you know, and, and I was like filled with so many different opinions um, as I struggled through this journey. Um, but I'm just going to read something here. And it's in The Doctor's Opinion. And The Doctor's Opinion was written by um, Dr. Silkworthy. He did a lot of work with uh, alcoholics and addicts back in the 1930s. And um, just, I'm just going to read one one thing in here. It says, all these and many others have one symptom in common. They cannot start drinking without developing the phenomenon of cra- craving. This phenomenon, as we have suggested, may be the manifestation of an allergy, which differentiates these people. And, th- and sets them apart as a distinct entity. It has never been by any treatment with which we are familiar permanently eradicated. The only relief we have to suggest is entire abstinence. Right. So I guess a couple of things in there is you know one is twelve step recovery is is about is abstinence based recovery. I just read it. That that's not my opinion. Now I know there's there's other programs out there that that have different ideas and and that's okay. You know. Um, but I thought it was quite interesting and I'll maybe put this back out to you you guys. I know Damien, you, you were back and forth, you know, trying to get this for a long time. It's telling me in here that I actually process ethyl alcohol differently than the average person. It applies to about 10% of the population, you know, and it's saying that, um, when added to my system, regardless of. If I had a bad childhood or didn't have a bad childhood, regardless of my war story, regardless if I've been to prison or not, regardless of anything, you know, and this is where to me, the, the church lady and the gangster start talking the same language. You know, when I add ethyl alcohol to my system, I break out into a phenomenon, a craving, which basically is just a fancy way of saying I break out in this yearning for more and it's beyond my control, my body actually, and there's been science has actually proved this this theory. This was written in the 1930s. Uh, they called it phenomenon because at the time there was no way of um, of proving up metabolism. But but science has actually proved up this theory since then. Right, the pancreas and the liver um, process ethyl alcohol differently. That when I actually add um, alcohol to my system. I have what you call an abnormal reaction, which means that I break out into this yearning for more, you know. And I'd been, I'd been to counselors, I'd been to treatment centers, I've been to doctors. I don't know about you guys, but nobody had ever told me that before. Yeah,
2: no, not me. I, I went to <coughs> rehab. Um, I bounced around the rooms of a 12-step program for a long time, and not one person could ever tell me what I was. Um, everything I was a, a, attempting to gain control over was, you know, my past experiences with events that had happened in my life. And I know when, when I was shown exactly what you're reading, um, plus, you know, other stuff in that book, it all made sense. Right. And and I'll read something cause this, this was me, you know uh, the fact The fact is that most alcoholics, for reasons yet obscure, have lost the power of choice in drink. Our so-called willpower becomes practically non-existent. We are unable at certain times to bring into our consciousness with sufficient force the memory of the suffering and humiliation of even a week or a month ago. We are without defense against that first drink. I thought willpower was the answer. I thought if I worked harder and wanted it enough that I'd be okay, right? Um, But nobody ever told me you know, the second part of our disease, which was that obsession of the mind, which caused me to forget about all of the chaos that I had created when I swore to myself that I was done. I'm never doing that again. Never again. Yeah. And sometimes by that evening, I'm doing it again, kind of against my will, but I didn't have any, any fight, you know, I'd, i
0: had lost the power of choice. Right. Yeah. hundred percent. So those are the two qualifying factors that actually make an alcoholic an alcoholic, right? You may or may not have had childhood trauma. You may or may not have had a, a gangster-type story. You may or may not have been to prison. There's a variety of things that may or may not have happened to you. But the two qualifying factors, you know, the first one I talked about is, is the allergy. Now, think of it this way. If I have an allergy to strawberries, pretty simple fucking solution, right? Just quit eating them. You know, um, I don't figure out ways of maybe just having one strawberry on the weekends or changing brands of strawberries or, you know, just tapering down on my strawberries. If I understand that I have an allergy to this, just stop, you know, but that's that second part of the illness. And that's actually where alcoholism lives. The main problem centers in the mind, not the body. That allergy is there for life. I will always have that. You know, we all refer to ourselves as recovered alcoholics. It has nothing to do with the allergy. That's there for life. Doesn't matter how spiritually fit I am, doesn't matter how much time I have in, doesn't matter how many people I sponsor, doesn't matter how well I'm doing. I can never safely add ethyl alcohol to my body. So, again, that takes us to the second part, which is the mental obsession. You know, and that's, and I can look back at, <laughs> And I'll maybe steer it back for you guys too. I can look back at all the times that I would wake up in the morning full of shame and guilt and remorse and then have this firm resolution to stop. And, and I don't mean bullshitting. I mean, you literally hooked me up to a polygraph test and I passed that test. And often, like, even later that day, I'm back at it again. I'm not sure if that's your guys' experience as well. <laughs> 100%. Uh, yeah. Thousands of times. <laughs> thousands.
3: For sure. I mean, with, without fail, it was more mornings than not started that way for me. So maybe we just spin it back a bit here. We're doing a lot of reading out of the book and then referencing it. C- can you enlighten us a little bit on, on how the, this book came to be the history, the origin of this book and this program
0: well sure oh, where do I want to go with this um, alcoholism's been around for 4,000 years It's uh, King Solomon wrote about it um, in some of the old writings there was never been a solution to alcoholism um, I always thought 12-Step uh, Recovery, Alcoholics Anonymous, was the first one to figure, figure a way out of this, but it wasn't. Um, in the 1840s, there was a, a group called the Washingtonians that uh, there was six, six businessmen out of uh, Baltimore, Maryland. They put a group together, and it was basically alcoholics helping alcoholics, and they grew unbelievably fast. They Actually, there's a, a word that they grew to 400,000 people in, in a 10-year time frame. Now, they disappeared quicker than they grew. Um, and looking back on why, because they started um, weighing in on other stuff. They started getting involved in politics. They started getting involved on uh, different movements. They got away from their primary purpose. And it wasn't the outside world that tore them apart. It was actually they, they tore themselves apart. You know, and it was part of the reason why uh, Twelve Step Recovery came up with the traditions, because um, Twelve Step Recovery started to um, tear themselves apart. Right? You guys been exposed. I mean, we we're, there's a lot of egos floating around, and we can uh, we can fight with each other, right? But I always thought the origins came from um, Doctor Bob and Bill W, and that's that's true, partially true, but it, some came prior to that. And there was a guy by the name of uh, Roland Hazard, um, very, very wealthy family, uh, very wealthy man, uh, Yale graduate, um, absolutely could not stop drinking. And his family contacted uh, Sigmund Freud in Europe to work with him to figure out how can we get this guy to stop drinking, right? How can he recover from alcoholism? And... Sigmund Freud at the time was actually, uh, whether he didn't have the time or didn't want to do it, but for whatever reason, he spilled him off to his uh, protege, which at the time was uh, Carl Jung. Now, Carl Jung, I think a lot of people out there know of Carl Jung. He's one of the most famous psychotherapists in the world, Um, and his readings are still studied to this day. And the Roland Hazard went to see him for a year and he studied the inner workings of his mind, right? And um, they deemed him as, uh, after a year with Carl Jung, they deemed him as cured. They figured that he knew enough about alcoholism and he knew enough about the inner workings of his mind that he was good, he was cured, right? Now, he didn't even make it out of Europe, and he was drunk. Came back to Carl Jung, and and uh, Carl Jung changed his... Uh, his prognosis and just said, uh, you are the alcoholic of the hopeless variety. And here's where I think there was a real turning point um, with the birth of 12-step. It took the most famous psychoanalyst of all time, or one of them, to say, to have the humility to say, I can't help you. You're beyond my aid. You know, but he did say that, there has been some experiences out there where um, some spiritual experiences where, you know, to seek out, there might be some hope for you because obviously this guy's quite dejected. Um, came back to the United States and he got involved with a program called the Oxford Group, which was a, a six-step program based on uh, Christianity, first century Christianity. And uh, he got sober in there. Something happened, right? He did some things in there that got him sober. He then carried the message to Ebby Thatcher, who then carried the message to Bill W., who brought the message to Dr. Bob. Um, Dr. Bob and Bill W., after spending some time in uh, the Oxford group, realized that, because Oxford group was for all people, it wasn't just for alcoholics or addicts, right? Um, They realized that they needed to have their own community, and then they spawned off um, alcohol they created Alcoholics Anonymous and the big book was written based on the experience of the first 100 uh, who had recovered right and I'll just, I'll just I'll read here quickly on why this uh, the book was written if I can find it. it says we of Alcoholics Anonymous are more than 100 men and women who have recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body to show other alcoholics precisely how we have recovered is the main purpose of this book, right? So this is a this isn't a novel for light reading. You know, this is actually a, a textbook with very specific directions. You know, so that was uh, maybe a quick five minute version of uh, more than you needed to know. Um, but uh, that's 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 the origins of where this came from.
2: Yeah.
0: <laughs> oh, excuse me. And so it, just in hearing.
2: You know, Mr. Hazard's story there. You know, the obsession took over before he had even left Europe, like you said. So, what 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 is that? How how does that obsession work for alcoholics or
0: addicts? Well, the obsession can kind of be summed up as a thought that pushes out all other thoughts, right? You know, just basically what you read there before, Damien, yep. is. Um, At certain times, I can't bring into the memory of my consciousness with sufficient force the suffering of even a a week or a month ago. Again, that's back to that idea of this is beyond willpower, right? I got a mind that keeps taking me back to say, this time, it's going to be different. Now, if anyone says, you know what, I I choose not to drink, and good for you. you. By definition, you're not an alcoholic or by definition, you're not an addict. If I, if you just say, you know what, one day I chose me, you know, my, my, my wife said, if you don't stop, it's over. Right. Or, you know, if you don't stop, you're going to jail or whatever, whatever the fear attached might be. Um, then you're just, you're, you're by definition, you're not an alcoholic or an addict. Right. It's, it's, <laughs> I like analogies. Right. And, and to me, it's, it can be, almost sounded up like a dog return it, returning to its vomit. Uh, if you could talk to the dog, I'm sure he would say this is really a bad idea. <laughs> <laughs> but here I go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. yeah, that's my experience with it
2: too. You know, I would I would get some sober time under my belt or I'd go away to work on a rig for a month at a time and I was feeling good and the last thing I wanted to do was to to go out and use again. And something would compel me like it was just this overriding thought that wouldn't stop until i got what i needed which was was booze or drugs and it uh that was when like you said the phenomenon of craving kicked in and rarely did i have just one i'd order one beer and and then four Red cokes <laughs> you know and oh, yeah. that uh every once in a while on a tuesday i'd have one beer and think Oh, f- how could i be this i'm i got this right That was never my
0: story. Well, that's the tricky part, right? When it comes to the allergy, I I mean, this is a progressive, fatal, and chronic illness, which basically means that what I was able to get away with in my teens, what I was able to get away with in my 20s, uh, wasn't what I was able to get away with as this thing progressed. You know? Um, Yeah, there was many nights. It's like, I'm just going to have a couple tonight, and I would have a couple. But more often than not, especially... As I got older, the plan was to have a couple and I'd have 10 or 20, right? It also brought me into a whole world of other stuff. You know, I mean, I had all sorts of issues with gambling. I I had outside issues. You know, there was just, my friend of mine would would always say, are we going to see Mr. Hyde tonight? You know, because it was just a roll of the dice. You know, who's going to show up? You know, it's uh, again. I like analogies. Uh, one of my friends out in Vegas says it's like the allergy can be summed up. It's like having sex with a gorilla. Once it starts, it ain't over till the gorilla says it's over. <laughs> <laughs> I've been that gorilla's bitch. <laughs> <laughs>
3: yeah, me, me as well, more than more than
2: once. So, the third part of our disease. Can you explain that to
0: to us and and our listeners, Mark? Sure. For qualification purposes, um, it's allergy and obsession. You know, if anyone's out there sitting there going, do I have this thing? Um, It's allergy and obsession, right? That's what makes us unique. These are the two qualifying factors. But there's this other thing called the spiritual malady, which is just, it's a fancy way of saying, I'm really, really uncomfortable in my skin in a sober state. You know, I started drinking at the age of 12. I think I could have used one at the age of six. You know, that's about how far back I can remember where I didn't feel okay inside. You know, I felt alone in a group of people. I felt, um, I, just, I was just afraid of everything, right? When I discovered alcohol, I loved it. I mean, I absolutely loved it, it changed everything. You know, I will never sit there from any podium or mic or, or, or saying that alcohol was terrible. It, it it changed my life for the better. Um, I could talk, I could fight. I wasn't afraid to talk to women. You know, I'd probably be a 40-year-old virgin if it wasn't for alcohol. You know, but um, I was better in business. I was just, I drank for the effect it produced. You know, it made me feel better. But there was like this invisible line, something happened along the way that it was no longer working for me, you know? And that's to me was where things get really dark. You know, once I'm, uh, you remove alcohol from me, the only my, I mean, I've heard you say it lots, both of you guys, alcohol wasn't my problem. Alcohol was my solution, you know? But that solution is no longer working for me anymore. And you take a real alcoholic and you have him just quit drinking, It's like a form of torture. You know, I needed a sufficient substitute. For me, just to stop drinking, I'm restless, I'm irritable, I'm discontented. You know, I'm... For me, it's easier actually to spot an alcoholic not when they're drinking, but when they're not drinking and don't have a program. They're the one that everyone's like tiptoeing around. They're a little bit sensitive. They erupt quickly. They're angered quickly. You know, that was me. You know, I was extremely uncomfortable in my skin in a sober state. That's why I drank. It quit working. I needed something else. And sobriety or not sobriety, but just stopping, you know, that's one thing the general public will never ever understand about an alcoholic or a drug addict is if you knew how we felt when we weren't drinking, you would never ask why we drank. So, <clears throat> I guess with that, um, you know, you've,
3: you've, you've touched on the different, the different venues you tried to get the help you needed from the the money you spent, the programs you entered, the doctors you spoke with. What what was your turning point to find sobriety long
0: term, mm. healthy, positive sobriety? Yeah, the turning point for me. You got to remember, I was I have a similar story to Damien. I know Rick, you got uh, you got sober your first your first meeting, and and, and that was just the way things worked out. I was, uh, I was in and out of, of 12 step recovery for, for a really long time. And, um, the only thing that was ever being told to me was go to meetings, go to meetings, go to meetings, go to meetings. Right. And I was like, I was dying on the inside. Um, meetings didn't treat what I had. I, I needed to, I actually needed to do the 12 steps. You know, it's, it's like joining an Oprah book club and not reading the book. You <laughs> can join in a 12 step recovery group and not doing the 12 steps. It, it never made sense to me. But again, um, I just didn't know. I didn't know what I didn't know. So for me, I, I talked about you guys when I was hitting that bottom, right? I was in Maui and I was having these feelings of impending doom. And it's funny because I, I'm not a, I don't have a religious background. I don't, um, I don't come, I, like I, I had a very much agnostic type beliefs but I just remember being there all beat up and and having those feelings of impending doom. And I started actually doing the Lord's Prayer every night. And it was because, uh, just kind of hedging my bets, right? Because I felt like I was going to die, like every moment of every day, and I didn't know why. And I started doing the Lord's Prayer just in case there's something on the other side. I want to make sure I'm covered, right? Um, but I think that everything happens uh, between seconds and inches. You know, Rick, I've heard you talk about, you know, picking a pamphlet that happened to just steer you into the room that day. Damien, you talk about, you know, hearing a voice that told you this is where you're supposed to go. For me, everything everything changed in a click of a mouse, you know, seconds and inches. Um, I was in and out of 12-step for years and dying of untreated alcoholism. And I, and I with a click of a mouse, I ended up in a, a meeting a 12-step meeting with a group of uh, hardcore fundamentalists. And this is just my story, right? But they were hardcore fundamentalists who cared more about me than my feelings. And they assigned me a sponsor that day. And if I didn't like it, get out. You know? And of course, I was offended because I'm easily offended. Um, but I was also intrigued. You know? And this person, it was actually a female out of New York who took me through the 12 steps quickly. We were through the work in about two or three weeks and, um, something happened, you know, the obsession was gone. It was, it almost seemed, uh, it almost seemed too easy, you know? And yeah, for me, for me, that was the turning point, you know? Now I would also go back to this, uh, this lady after the fact cause it was it was taught to me that a sponsor is like your life coach and you're supposed to go to them with all your problems and um, I would go to this lady after the fact after I'd done the 12 steps and she really really stressed the importance of service work and I remember calling her after the fact usually relationship drama right and I would call in and, and she would always ask the same question did you help another alcoholic today and if the answer was no click she would hang up the phone, you know? Now I don't do that personally, but it is exactly what I needed at the time because it taught me, I was a skilled manipulator and an expert liar. And it taught me the importance of getting out of self and giving back to other alcoholics. And like I said, that's, that's how I met Damien. I was having one of my worst days in sobriety. And I've, I've heard both of you guys talk about, I don't um, get better and then go help people. I get better by helping people. And that has been my experience.
3: Yeah. I know there's a lot of, uh, especially with newcomers or, or people first coming to the program or even before they get to the program. Right. And as soon as they hear that narrative of, of help others, the, the immediate response nine times out of 10 is I'm too sick to help anybody else. I need to get good first. And, uh, and yeah, I, I can mirror that, you know, it. There's a direct correlation between my mental state and how engaged I am in supporting other people. If I stop helping other people, that voice in my head gets really loud really quick, and things get really negative really quickly, and without fail. Like I don't even think it's possible to hear that voice if you're if you're engaged in a conversation with somebody else about them. Like if you focus that if you if you fo- if your external is or. If your focus is external, you can't possibly be listening to that voice in your own head. And uh, it, it's, yeah, I struggle with that all the time, um, working with somebody new, right? It's getting them the grasp that the value they have as somebody new. And I, I remember once one guy specifically, I met with him, and he was just like days, days off the bottle and suicidal and, and losing his mind. And And I just kind of explained to him, I'm like, dude, you've got... You've got so much value to offer on a whole bunch of different fronts, right? One, you you remind me of what it's like out there and I don't want to go back there. More importantly, you know, we, we get into this program and you're a week in and, and you're starting to see this turnaround and, and you've got hope in your eyes and, you know, the... Well, we we always joke about the before and after pictures, right? If we could show a guy a picture... a his first day in versus a week in They don't even look the same Right like there's like a physical Transformation And uh, And to have somebody that fresh Be able to reach out to somebody On the fence maybe about it And say like Listen there. not only is there a solution I found it a week ago It's huge This isn't A, a take your time program This isn't you know a step a month, a step a year. If you know, I, I've heard the analogy a thousand times, right? If you if you were diagnosed with cancer, are you going to take your time taking your medicine, or are you going to get rid of that shit as quick as you can? Like you're gonna you're gonna hit that hard, right? And and I think you know we've we've all shared enough war stories that I think we were similar in our tolerance. <laughs> um, I needed a solution that I could attack as hard as I attacked my use and uh yeah I think just huge value to that newcomer that you know and and there's so much can be said about that how the importance of of you you get well by helping people you don't need to wait till you're well to help somebody
2: well and I think the seconds and inches thing that Mark was speaking of um I didn't have you know a month I didn't have a year to do this work. I had I had eleven days, you know, because that's how sick I was, and that was the gap of time that the universe had provided for me. And I was desperate, and I did to the best of my ability exactly what is outlined in that book, and the tr- universal principles that are put into the twelve steps were something that I could use on a daily basis. That I have to use. Now I have choice on using that today and that's the the amazing piece and it's you know for me it's six simple words you know trust the universe help or sorry trust the universe clean house help others right and if I do those six things on a daily basis then my life got good and it got good real quickly right and I think that's the misconception out there is that it's going to take a long time and it's going to be extremely hard but I'll tell you what being out and being hopeless is a lot harder than harder than doing the work and
0: living the life of recovery that I have today. Yeah, absolutely. Um, There's, there's a doctor, a guy by the name of Dr. Harry Tebow, and he did a lot of work with alcoholics and addicts. And, and, um, he writes about the restoration powers of the alcoholic ego, you know, for the, so for the same guy that's desperate and there's crying and I'll do anything, I'll do anything, right. In order to get well, um, that window of opportunity is short. Right? Either A, he's gonna get so uncomfortable in his skin, he can't you can't stay sober, you're not gonna be around. Or B, he's gonna start feeling a little bit better. The ego rebuilds and away he goes, right? That window of opportunity, at least in my estimation, as well as the the book reconciles that, right? That window of opportunity where the ego is obliterated and that person's willing, man, you gotta get moving on it. I mean, I just took a guy and, and you get you're friends with this guy, you know who he is and and um we just did the steps. He was, he was near in the end. He was in a lot of trouble. We just did the, the 12 steps in five days. Now, mind you, we spent a lot of time with each other in those five days. I mean, many, many, many hours. He shot me a text last night and he's like, it's gone. You know, I mean, there's, there might be some people listening to this. It's like, there's no way that that could happen that quick. Well, guess what? If anyone wants to talk to this guy, he'd be happy to talk to anyone out there. He will, you know, you can't take away someone else, you know, maybe it's not your experience, but you can't take away that person's experience. And and he's like, it's gone. Yeah, I remember speaking in the treatment center year and a half ago at, you know,
2: five and a half years sober and sharing my story and, and telling this group of people in rehab that I had done the steps in 11 days in this, this old timer, he's like, <laughs> that can't fucking be done. My sponsor says that that's not possible. And it was just like, well, look where I'm sitting. <laughs> look where you're sitting. I'm telling you, this is my experience. This is what the, the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous tells me. If I do these things, this is what can happen. And it might have shifted his perception of it, but my representation of what 12-step was was way different than what it actually is up until the point I met met you Mark and that, uh, I'm so grateful that I, I know how to live life the way human beings are supposed to live. And it was taught to me from the text of this book.
3: I, uh, I've been chatting with a, a young woman who's trying to come to terms with this and I'm trying to get her to engage in this program. And she's really, really on the fence about it. And she's, uh, she's a teacher and she's, she's tried the program before and it didn't work. And, uh, And I'm like, okay, well, tell me about that. What does that look like, right? So she kind of gets into her experience with the program. And I'm like, well, this program didn't fail you. Your sponsor did. You had a shit sponsor. You need to fire that sponsor. And she kind of hemmed and hawed. And she's like, you know, and she she comes at it from an educational background. She goes, you know, I just don't think that program's for me. She's like, in my experience as a teacher, you know, one method doesn't work for everybody. Like, I have to take a different approach with each student. Based on their unique and special needs Right And I'm like okay And I left it for a day And I've been thinking about it And stewing on it And I'm like no I can reconcile that And I went back to her And I went As an educator then If this is the analogy we're going to use You got good teachers And you got shit teachers You got people that are there That are passionate That are committed to seeing The betterment of children That want to instill That want to motivate That want to inspire children and you've got people that are there for a paycheck. The difference is, the curriculum doesn't change. The curriculum's the curriculum. So you can have a shit teacher that's going to walk through it half-assed and not really give a shit, and the results will be measured on a P, uh, on like a performance evaluation. You get a teacher that's engaged, qualified, and passionate about something. You're going to have a very uniquely different outcome with those students. And so, um, yeah, you know, we've, we've all spoken the recovery center many, many times and, and it's, it's consistent, right? I think I can speak for all of us. That's, you know, who here's tried AA or, or one of the 12 step programs or, or one of the fellowships and, and typically three quarters of the people put up their hand and typically three quarters of them have a, have a shitty story about it. Cause at the end of the day, I mean, if they had a success story, they wouldn't be back in there. Right. And, uh, and it, it's, it's really consistent with, you know, what what you were talking about. Well, I went to meetings. Well, and, and and what did you do? Well, you know, did you get a sponsor? Did you get a sponsor who had a sponsor? Did you do the steps? Have you helped anybody else? Well, no, no, no. You know, 90 meetings in 90 days. Meeting makers make it. I can't remember if it was you or I, I, I heard the analogy once and it sticks with me constantly and I share it all the time is, um, you know, you can go to the gym. You can be really, really invested mentally in getting in shape. You could really, really, really want it. And you can go to the gym 90 times in 90 days. But unless you pick up a weight or unless you get on a treadmill, jack shit is going to change. And then that voice of failure and shame and guilt, you know, you just fuel that thing. So you kind of got to get your feet moving and get your feet moving early because, yeah, I mean, we've all seen that window slam shut you know, the window of willingness and ego. It's, it's insane how quickly ego can be restored, especially amongst the, I find the more intellectual people even, right? The ones that can, yeah. the smarter the person is, the quicker that ego comes back. Um, so I guess that brings me to my next question for you. What, uh, you know, in in your experience, what, what have, what would you say is the most challenging piece of the people entering a
0: 12-step program? Well, maybe I'll just backtrack here just a tiny bit just to follow up on on what you were saying. Um, I think it's important to know, for everyone to know, that anyone that ever tried to help me really truly tried to help me. It's not like anyone ever woke up, whether it was a counsellor, whether it was another person in 12-step recovery, whatever it might have been, they truly had my best interest in mind. Right, they didn't wake up this morning and just say, "How am I going to fuck up Mark today?" You know. <laughs> so, <laughs> Little did they know you were doing a good job of that on well your own. Well, sure, <laughs> right? But it was, you know, a, 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 how do you know what you don't know? You know, there's a lot of people that truly um, wanted to help, and maybe they just weren't an alcoholic uh, of my variety. You know, which is advanced. Um, and they just they really weren't sure what to do with me. You know, as far as um the biggest challenge that I see with people coming into twelve step and, and what I talked about already before, it's 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 the God thing, you know? Hundred percent. It was and it says in our literature, fifty percent of our membership came as atheist or agnostic, but still had the opportunity to recover if they had the capacity to be honest. Right now, this program is really cool. They get to you get to create your own higher power. This can look as however inadequate it may seem, it's something, it's a start, you know. Um, it might just be it, it might be Jesus, it might be Buddha, it might be the spirit of the universe, it might be the word love. It doesn't matter what it is, as long as it's something bigger than you. I mean, I spoke at a I still remember I spoke at a treatment center about three or four years ago in Phoenix and and it was a state funded treatment center, which means it was um it was kind of badass, right? It was um the clients in there were a lot of them were like gang bangers. One but I remember one guy, he had a full face tattoo, right? And me and another guy were in there sharing and and we're sharing some hope and it's like, you know, you can you can get well right? You can get well quick. And, and he was mean mugging me. And then he'd get on this, the tip of his chair and he was excited. And then he'd mean mug me and then he would be, and get excited again. You could tell he was highly conflicted. Right. And, and he came up to me afterwards with his arms crossed. He's like, well, what if you don't believe in God? I'm like, that's fine. Are you willing to believe? Cause that's all our literature says. Are you willing to believe? And it kind of took him back. And he's like, well, yeah. So do you believe that I believe? He's like, well, yeah. I'm like, perfect. You just finished step two. Let's go. You know, it doesn't need to be any more complicated than that. I know, Rick, I've shared with you and we kind of come from the same background. It's, you know, with very, very agnostic tendencies. And I remember my first six months of uh, sobriety, I was still in the oil and gas industry and I was up in Fort St. John a lot. And while everyone's in the bars doing shots, I'm wandering around church basements trying to find my way. Right. And, um, and there was this one guy, it was his 32nd uh, sobriety birthday, and he just kept on calling it the God of his not understanding. I'm like, and something just clicked. I'm like, that I get, you know, there's, do I believe there's something out there? Yeah. Am I meant to understand it? Maybe not. You know, I don't think it's that important that I do. I think it's more important that I experience it, you know, and that's, to me it's through that human connection and helping others that's experiencing it rather than me being able to, uh, have that dogmatic approach that, uh, was kind of scared the hell out of me as a kid. Right. And if that works for people, great, but it wasn't, wasn't working for me.
3: Um, yeah, I know, I know like, you know, you, you've me and you shared a lot of conversations around you, you, you weren't my sponsor. Um, and, uh, but I do remember Phony all the time going like, "Really? <laughs> yeah. You know, really?" And uh, like, I really got to do this. And like, can I just go through the motions and smile and nod? And do I get the result? And and I remember you telling me, "Just do it." Like, whether you believe in it or not, whether you think it'll work or not, what do you got to lose, right? And and I guess at the time. You know, that's that battle of that ego that's starting to creep back in, right? Is maybe I don't need this. Maybe this isn't for me. Maybe this won't work for me. And you start looking for reasons it won't before you just say, fuck it and give it a try, right? And there's, I don't know, like I know that first couple weeks, man, I know just talking with you and, because that's 100% where I was. I I remember going into a 12-step meeting, you know, it was probably my third or fourth one before, like, the, the tears cleared and I could actually see and focus on what was going on. I remember looking at the looking at steps in the wall and anything that said God or prayer, I'm like, nope. Not gonna do it. And, uh, and I remember breaking it into, like, I guess I guess I'm gonna turn this 12-step program that's worked for millions of people into a customized five-step program for Rick Armstrong, because that's what it'll work, right? And, uh, and I remember you going, "Well, let me know how that goes for you." Pretty much, right? And uh, it wasn't until I just conceded and went, "Oh, fuck it," like I've got. You're right. I'm, I'm, I'm suicidal. I'm in the worst place I've ever been in my life. What really qualifies me to have an opinion about anything at this point? And it wasn't until I just went, "Okay," and started working through things that I genuinely didn't believe, and I still struggle with what that belief is, and it's, it's by no means a dogmatic higher power, right? It just, it's, there's something out there that's kept me around, that protected me because God knows I shouldn't be sitting here for some of the situations I put myself in.
2: I really like that word concede (laughs) because I've been, this part of the book really jumped out at me, but there's there's a word in there that, that I'd never noticed before and it said we learned that we had to fully concede to our innermost selves that we were alcoholic. And that word that really is resonating with me was the learned one. And I had to learn through pain and suffering and misery and a lot of it before I conceded that I couldn't do this anymore, right? And that was actually the biggest victory that I ever had in my life was getting to that place of fully conceding, right? Um, And so, yeah, it, it just keeps rolling. You know, I had to have all the experiences that I had to put me in front of Mark on December 19th, 2014, to to be willing to hear, and more importantly for me, to take action. You know, I took up a lot of seats and just attempted to learn by osmosis. And what did that, what happened to me? Well, I had to go back out and learn a lot more <laughs> hard lessons before I was truly willing, right? And I guess that's part of what we're doing is maybe changing that narrative so people don't have to get or learn as many hard lessons as I learned Um, To get to a point of conceding, (laughs) learn from our mistakes. Don't make your own. There's a lot of them.
0: (laughs) Well, that's my experience too, is unless you, and this is where I think it's so important that somebody has a, a profound step one experience to really understand what it means to be an alcoholic. And do you have this thing or not? Right. And to understand that this is progressive, it's fatal and it's chronic And it ends up in three parking spots, jails, institutions, and death. And if you still got some fight left in you, you know, it's probably not going to work yet. You know, for to get to the point of surrender, it's a. It doesn't feel good at the time. I I mean, I've talked to you. You guys have spoken to lots of people. You know, at the at the brink of suicide, and so have I. I would. It's. Easier for me to work with someone that's homicidal and suicidal, that's going to argue and wordsmith with me. You know, if I have to turn on a put on a salesman hat, they're probably just not ready yet. You know, you have to fully concede that yes, I have this. This will kill me. I mean, I want to give somebody a fatal dose of alcoholism before I share hope. Yeah, if you have this, huh, you know, I, I see on 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 Facebook with with people all the time. They're you know, someone that says that they're, you know, quit drinking and they're in recovery and they're like, people are like, you got this, you got this. I'm like, no, you don't. <laughs> <laughs> you do not have this, you know, not on your own. And, and if you believe that you have this, you become a lot more open-minded. You know, I didn't care anymore. Tell me what to do. I don't give a shit if I believe it in or not. You know, there's many, like I literally roll out of bed onto my knees every day. I... I can honestly say there's many days I'm like, come on, Mark, you know, you don't believe in this, you know, but I do it anyways. It's become so ingrained into me. It's like brushing my teeth, you know, because I don't want to go back to where I was, you know, it is important to me that I never go back. I wanted to stop drinking and could not, you know, it's just like, okay. What's the recipe? I'll do the recipe. I can do it under protest with my arms crossed. Doesn't matter, as long as I do it. Yeah,
2: I had a couple conversations over the weekend just about the difference between being sober and air quotes and being sober. You know, and and people couldn't believe that I was forty some days sober when my darkest day hit, and it had nothing to do with the booze. You know. Um, And so I completely relate to people that are, well, I quit drinking and then terrible things happen in their sober state when they don't have something to replace, you know, what was our solution, which was, was booze. Right. And changing that narrative and being that example of what that looks like. It's crazy when people, the wheels start turning in their head and they're like, oh, that kind of makes sense. (laughs) Like, okay. And then they come out of the woodwork and like, can I get your number? Can
0: can we talk? Yeah. Yeah, hundred percent. You know? Yeah. You gotta remember why did we drink? And it talks about it in, in the doctor's opinion. We drank for the effect it produced. Right? Now I had to find a sufficient substitute. For me just not to drink is like torture. You know? Sufficient substitute is exactly what you guys are doing, you know? doing what we do on a daily basis. I have a daily reprieve based on the condition, you know, of the things that I do in order to stay in a recovered state, but I, I do all this for the effect. I don't even necessarily believe in it sometimes, I don't necessarily even want to do it sometimes, but I do not want to go back, you know, so yeah, I do it all for the effect and it treats my alcoholism you know it does what booze used to do for me when it worked
3: so how successful is this program when you look at you know when you look at real 12 step can you speak to this the success because i know like sitting here right there's we've got th- you know I. I don't want to sound like a dick, right? But we've got three relatively success stories sitting here, I think. We're we're not dead, so something must have worked, right? Um but I know there's a lot of people out there, like I said, we've spoken at the treatment center enough times to have people uh say they've tried this program and it doesn't
0: work. So what what can you speak to, to that? Sure, rather than uh, rather than giving my opinion, there is actually it's in our it's in our literature. It's in the forward of the third edition. And it talks about, for those who came, and here's the clarifier, and really tried. 50% got sober at once and 25% after a few relapses, right? So by my math, that's 75%, which is mind-boggling. That's astounding. That's incredibly good. But the clarifier in there is who really tried. I've become a, a real... Um, a study of the history, you know, the, there was a group out of Cleveland who touted a 93% success rate. I mean, come on, man, are you kidding me? 93% of the people that came to that room. Now they did things a lot differently then, you know, you were assigned a sponsor day one, non-optional, you know, there was none of this. Oh, I'm just going to hang around and, you know, hit a whole bunch of meetings. Things were just different then. I'm not saying that's right or wrong, good or bad. It's just how it happened back then. You know, but my experience is working with, I've worked with a lot of different people. You know, I've, I've taken a a pile of people through the 12 steps and my experience is the same as that forward to the third edition of those who came and the clarifier who really tried really trying isn't, you know, hitting a whole pile of meetings and bitching about your wife. You know, or know telling you know how you hate traffic or your boss or you know some dumping ground for your problems really tried means actually doing this work that's required right my experience is very similar to the the forward to the third 50% at once 25% after a few relapses you know but the big thing is is you really tried i mean if if we're just sitting down and someone's arms crossed arguing you know i don't even count that It's like, no, if if you get to the 12th step and you're out there helping some others, um, there's a damn good chance that that you're going to stay around. And not just stay around, but, I mean, look at you guys. You guys have freaking amazing lives. You know, this is about not hiding in your basement, you know. I don't think I was ever meant to get sober to hide. I think I was meant to get sober to go have a really cool, exciting life. You know and that's what this program has done and that's my experience as far as uh you know let's just call it success rates you know yeah I think
2: my experience is fairly similar to yours Mark where my representation of what a 12-step program was was that it had to be your life and and yeah, meetings were the most important thing and and that it was gonna be hard and that's you know why I didn't do the steps or I never was exposed to doing the steps and Um, What I found is, as our literature says in chapter five, how it works, rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. You know, once I thoroughly followed the path, which is outlined in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, I started to thrive. You know, that's where I think human beings are supposed to live is way up here. And I was just existing in addiction and alcoholism and then also when i wasn't drinking i was just existing it actually was even worse than existing i just wanted to die um and it's it's pretty cool to to see this fellowship grow up around us here in our own community of people that are they're sober and they're thriving and they're inspiring other peoples to live purpose-filled lives and you know that uh it's cool to be part of a community and especially a community that was uh brought together by people, you know, back in the thirties, but they were thinking about somebody like me and made sure that this thing was going to be around so
0: that I could get this message in the 21st century. Right. Yeah, totally. I think that, uh, the idea with most things is that we know so much more today. Um, I think these guys got it figured out, man, you know, back in the 1930s when they, a lot of people died with the creation of this literature with the creation of the big book they wrote on their experience they figured it out they had a recipe and this book has not been changed one word since 19 well 1939 when it was published right um to me this is what works you know there's lots of ideas out there and there's new ways and 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 you know there's lots of different theories out there but i don't know guys it's I don't think the wheel needs to be recreated here.
3: So why doesn't it work, I guess? Why why are people relapsing at the rate they are? What's, you know, if if we're sitting here speaking so confidently on our our personal profound, again, I I hate using the word success, but success with the program. Why are people relapsing?
0: Well, I guess... One would be, before you even come in the program, there's, we talked about it already, it's so important that people realize what they have, what they are, and they are screwed on their own willpower. Now that's a journey, right? 12-step program was the last stop on the block for me. I had to go through a tremendous amount of suffering before my ego had been obliterated enough for me to say, what do I need to do? I can't get this. You know? Now again, if somebody's gonna wordsmith me, argue with me, I wanna do it my own way, I I by all means go, go do it. Right. If if you can get up in the morning and do twenty jumping jacks and do the bird dance stand the day and you're staying sober, all the power to you, right? I think that each individual needs to go through it, at least for me, a tremendous amount of suffering. Um before the white flag goes up and saying, I, "I, I don't, I don't got this," right? What do I need to do? Now, there's also, I mean, I've seen people with eight years of sobriety go out, 20 years of sobriety. You know, another lady that I know, 24 years, right? Um, in working with uh dozens and dozens and dozens of of people, in my experience, the two things that send people back out is a little chunk of dishonesty in their life that happens in recovery, you know, and I don't know what that is. It's usually something, whether they're padding expense account, they're having an affair, they're doing something that they're burying. It's not that they're doing it that's gonna send them back out, but it's that they're doing it and burying it and lying about it. Right. That like never ever underestimate the negative impact of a chunk of dishonesty. And then the other thing is this just flat out unwillingness uh to work with others and to give back, you know the people that I see that stay around and not just stay around, right? There's a difference between being dry and, and recovered or sober. You know, the people that thrive are the ones that, that give back. You know, I think there's a level of complacency that happens when, you know, you get your life back externally, everything you can get seduced into a false sense of, uh, security, right? It's like, okay, I've got the, you know, I've got the wife back and the kids are talking to me and, you know, things are good at work and maybe I don't need to do this anymore. You know, that to me are the two things, the chunk of dishonesty or flat out complacency. And yeah, it's, I think we've touched on the three parts of the, the disease of
2: alcoholism or addiction or, but we, you know, it's a, there's a three part solution to that. Right. And, you know, I think, uh, the service piece for me is when I'm when I'm not actively helping other people or, you know, looking to be of service to my community and my fellows. That's when, that's when my life seems to get a little rough. Even you know six years sober, uh, but at least today I have an awareness and the obsession for me is gone. So it never comes back. Where this would be a great option, you know, um, but I have the tools today, I guess to. The way I'm supposed to live as a man on this planet, and I get to choose to use those, or and get healthy, or not to use them and suffer. Right? Um, sometimes it takes me minutes, sometimes hours, but at least today i uh, i
0: don't uh, I don't go to those dark, dark recesses in my mind. No, for sure. Um, I think there's this idea that because our lives are good that we don't have bad days and 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 we do or i do sometimes i have horrible days you know it's like maybe i got something else going on here too right you know but i have a toolkit to get out of it it doesn't last as long and it doesn't happen as often and i think it's important to know that i know for me and i know you guys really well and i know what's happening behind the scenes you know, a lot of people are just seeing the finished product, right? It's like a it's like a duck swimming on the water. You know, the duck, it looks very, very graceful as it's swimming around, but then you pull the body out of the water and you see the legs just paddling away like crazy, right? You know, my legs are paddling away. I know your guys' legs are paddling away, you know? Not saying you're struggling, but you you work for this, you know, because it's important. Yeah, I- it's not it's not even
3: important it's necessary i do not get to you know and i guess we can talk about the result of this program right and the gifts that we've received i wouldn't get to be well shit like I, I lost everything right i didn't have a family anymore i didn't have a home i didn't like all i lost all of that at least in my at least it felt like it right and uh, if I don't do this thing the way it's outlined in that book I know what that loss feels like and I I I refuse to go back there and by by doing these steps you know with that obsession being lifted I, I get to be a father to my kids I get to be a husband to my wife I get to be just a better part of the community right and it's um so much better than the alternative right and and i've talked about it a thousand times too right they uh trying to tip the scales right for so long i lived such a selfish life um you know me me first mentality and and i tipped those you know whether you want to call them karma scales or whatever right so far that uh this is the program that I need to do to even start getting those scales tipped back to, at least, at the very least, balanced, hopefully, by the time my time is up here. And um, it's, you know, I heard Damien talk about it here this week, how this isn't hard. (laughs) That, the life
2: previous to this was hard. This is easy. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't know that I was allowed feel love and to feel happy and contentment I had so much chaos in my life from w- when I was a little boy to 36 years old that I thought that that's how life was supposed to be but then learning these universal principles that are the 12 steps and then not just learning them but taking action and putting them into my life on a daily basis each year since i got sober has been another 10 like he, i read my son this book and at the very the very last page is how can it get any better than this and it's like it's so true you know i would have sold myself so short the day i met you mark if i would have told you what my dreams were and then to have what i have now as a result of keeping my feet moving constantly the universe has just said here you go here you go and what a cool place to to play knowing that if i keep doing this where where could i go in life surrounded by people that are lifting me up and building me up um and not those crabs in the bucket pulling me down to exist with them they want to see me thrive
0: you know yeah no absolutely um same thing with me guys i mean my life is beyond my wildest dreams um but what, also what this program has done for me, it's given me a design for living in the dark times too. You know, I mean, it's sure easy to be sober when things are wonderful. But what are you going to do when she leaves or he leaves or you lose your job or somebody dies? Um, problems are coming. It's part of life. You know, what this program has done for me, I mean, for, for myself, not everything was wonderful. My first year was great, and then years between years two and four, um, the better part of my family all died. Right, my dad died, my mom died, I had a bunch of other relatives all die. And what this program has done for me is, it's given me a way to get through things with an element of grace and dignity. You know, whereas before, I mean, shit, I couldn't even do lunch without something in me right and I mean I I did the eulogy at my uh, at my father's uh, funeral and now I remember that was back in uh, 2015 now I remember uh, he passed away and of course it's a big deal right but uh I remember talking to the, uh, the pastor and it's like, I'm not sure if I can do this. You know, I'm not sure if I can do this. And, and he was going to step in for me and lack of power is my dilemma, not lack of faith. You know, I remember getting a call that night from a guy that I sponsor out in Boston and he was hurting, right? I didn't even tell him my father passed away and I helped him. Right. Did a 12 step call. You know, whereas before it's like, I can't help you. I'm too busy. I, I got my own shit going on. Right. Um, I did a 12 step call with this guy and, uh, got him through it. What happened to me was my spirits were lifted and I went out the next day and delivered a eulogy, which I'm told was, was absolutely amazing. Right. Now, could I have done that if I didn't take that 12 step call? I I don't think so. Right? I don't think so. You know, it's allowed me a way of living, um, not just when things are good, but when things are dark, because shit's going to happen to each and every one of us out there, right? Life's going to come at you. It's not always wonderful. And what I can honestly say is, in eight years, not once has the obsession to drink come back. I mean, that's a freaking miracle, you know? That's with all of the, the bad stuff and good stuff that's happened in my life, right? To me, that's, that is the miracle of this program, is that freedom of uh, a, a way of living when things are good and bad.
3: Yeah. So as, as we start to wrap this episode up here, I think one of our goals when we started... OCJ was to help people realize what they may or may not be suffering from. Because I talked about it a whole bunch, right? I never would have identified as an addict or an alcoholic. I didn't know what I was. I knew that I was irritable, restless, discontent. I knew that I didn't function right in this world without something giving me the courage I guess right taking away the fear Um, so for anybody listening out there I'd like to wrap this up by reviewing those two qualifying questions again when you stop
2: can you stay stopped
0: and when you start do you know when you're gonna stop So when you start, do you lose control over the amount of consumption you're going to have? And when you honestly want to, you can't stay stopped, right? So the allergy and the obsession, those are the two qualifying factors. Do I have this thing or not? Right Now, to me, that's the language that makes this universal. Again, whether it's a gangster or whether it's a church lady, right? that's the language we're all speaking you know that's the illness that we both, that we all have if you have those two qualifying factors again has nothing to do with the external circumstances so if if anything
3: that you've heard today has remotely piqued your interest and you're even a little bit curious what the fuck do you got to lose? Worst case scenario, we're all full of shit and it's wrong. And you're going to be right back where you were. Or you're going to live a life that you didn't even know was possible.
0: Well, I think at the very least, a seed's been planted. You know, if you're on your journey and, and it's like, you know, maybe I have this, maybe I don't. A seed's been planted that, yeah, there's a way out, you know? And you can reach out to Rick and you can reach out to Damien or, I mean, you can reach out to me. They have my number. You can talk to me direct. There is a way out. And if you need to go get beat up and suffer a little bit, then so be it, right? That's your journey. But if there comes a point in the future, it's just like, I'm done. And what do I need to do now? There is help out there. And I think, you know,
2: you touched on this earlier, Mark, is that this thing that we have is fatal. And I I hope that if you're feeling like you might have what we have, that you reach out before it gets to that point. Um, Because you don't, you can use our experience and our message to maybe see where you're going and... And we'll be here to to support you in whatever aspect you need to uh, to get you to where you're, you need to go.
3: I guess my closing remark is in line with that. If you are suffering out there, I wish you the gift of desperation. I hope you get to that spot where you're out of fight and you're willing just to follow some simple direction. Thank you so much, Mark, for coming in today, for having this chat with us. Thanks for everything you've done in my life, and I'm sure Damien would shadow that sentiment,
0: hundred and ten percent. Guys, thanks, uh, thanks so much for the opportunity, and I am incredibly uh, proud of, of both you watching this journey. So it's uh, it's fun, you know. I mean, this is uh, this is what it's all about. So again, thank you. Amazing.
2: So, once again, from the Plugged In Media Network studio in Medicine Hat, Alberta, we'll catch you guys on the next episode.
1: From Darkness to Life is an Our Collective Journey podcast. These are the true stories of struggles and triumphs against addiction and mental health challenges. If these stories resonate with you and you or someone you love need help and don't know where to turn, Rick, Ryan, and Damien are here for you. Contact Our Collective Journey on Facebook at Our Collective Journey or on the web at ourcollectivejourney.ca. Hosted by Poncho Parker. Produced by Rob Pate. Engineered, edited, and directed by Dave Crookshank. From Darkness to Life is a Plugged In Media Network exclusive. Check out this and our other great podcasts at PiMediaNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.